Welcome to Leonard Lopate at Large. I'm Leonard Lopate. Today is a holiday in Northern Ireland. It's variously called the 12th, the Glorious 12th, or Orangeman's Day, a public holiday held on the 12th of July that began in Ulster in the late 18th century to celebrate the Glorious Revolution of 1688 and the 1690 victory of Protestant King William of Orange over Catholic King James II at the Battle of the Boyne which began the Protestant ascendancy in Ireland. But Northern Ireland is in a less celebratory mood these days. And Michael Patrick McDonald, an American activist who spends part of the year in Ireland, joins us now to discuss those recent developments. He's the author of a number of books, including his best-selling American Book Award-winning memoir, All Souls, a family story from Southie, and also Easter Rising, a memoir of roots and rebellion. And he's been serving as a special correspondent on this show, covering events in Ireland and the UK. Welcome back to our show, Michael. Here I am. Michael, Northern, Northern Ireland was created in 1921 when Britain carved six counties out of Ireland's northeast. So shouldn't it be celebrating its centennial? Well, yeah. So this year would be the 100th anniversary, so to speak, of the creation of the statelet called Northern Ireland. Of course, um, a huge portion of the population of those six counties would not be celebrating anything because they would be um Catholics that were immediately, you know, uh, set into a kind of second class citizenship uh, conditions with that creation of Northern Ireland. Uh, Northern Ireland was carved out of Ireland as, um, you know, in the aftermath of the Easter Rising and the Irish War for Independence, where, which saw the, the independence of 26 or the semi-independence of 26 counties of what became the Free State and then later the place we call the Republic of Ireland. In the north, in those northern six counties, those were kept as part of the United Kingdom. Um, a very large, at the time, population of Unionists in favor of union with Great Britain, um, who would also happen to be Protestant and loyal to the crown, um, descendants of the colonial population. Um, they would, of course, want to to see Northern Ireland remain part of the United Kingdom. Now, that population um, difference has shifted there in the 2022 census. There will probably be more Catholic nationalist Republicans than Protestant Unionist loyalists, therefore more Irish identified people who want to be part of um, a united Ireland. Um, that population, the Catholic Irish nationalist population, the descendants of, you know, the people who would identify as Irish who were, who were colonized by Britain, um, they they were second class citizens throughout the entire existence of what's what's often referred to as the orange state, referring to Protestant ascendancy um, and the dominance of people who would be today celebrating the victory of King William of Orange at the Battle of the Boyne in 1690. So this stuff has deep roots and it has deep roots in colonialism and it's all been coming undone and acceleratingly so as a result of Brexit. And so this year, which would be the 100th anniversary of the statelet of Northern Ireland is a year that uh, that that is seeing the place fall apart, really, um, or you know, seeing the end of the state and the beginning of um, really thorough organizing around a united Ireland. 
Hasn't the largest unionist political party ousted two of its leaders recently while people have taken to the streets waving flags and, and even threatening violence? Uh, what's the cause of all the turmoil? It, it seemed to me that in, in our previous discussions, things had been calming down. Well, so the Democratic Unionist Party, that would be the largest unionist political party that was founded by the very famous um, Ian Paisley. People remember Ian Paisley, perhaps from the 1970s when he railed against um, Catholics and by Catholics, you know, they mean Irish people, um, Irish identified people. They they he would rail against them as as dogs and 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 um, filthy beasts and so forth. Um, he was the founder of the Democratic Unionist Party. The Democratic Unionist Party would be the equivalent really to kind of the Trump party. Um, and uh, that party is the largest of the two unionist parties. That party would be the head of the executive, the, uh, the assembly in the north of Ireland. And in recent, uh, you know, recent developments that happened was that Arlene Foster, who was the head of the DUP, was ousted, uh, mainly because she couldn't um, really people were, you know, loyalists, uh, loyalists were rising up against the what's called the Northern Ireland Protocol um, as a kind of um, the Northern Ireland Protocol was set up by the EU and the UK as a way to prevent a hard border coming back to Ireland, a hard border between Northern Ireland and the Republic of Ireland. Um, that protocol... And there's also a new border in the Irish Sea, isn't there? Yeah, so the protocol, protocol resulted in putting the border in the Irish Sea, and by border I mean a customs border, but the loyalists see that as a threat to their precious union, as they would refer to it as, um, and they would see it as another step toward a united Ireland, because... Putting the border in the Irish, even if it's just a customs border, um, customs are, you know, that's pretty much everything, customs and trade. And uh, and and there's really no military border since the Good Friday Agreement, the peace accords that started in the, uh, that happened in the 1998. Um there's no military border between the, what's called Northern Ireland and the Republic of Ireland, the 26 uh, states, uh, counties of the south. And now there is a kind of border in the Irish Sea. So that's called the Northern Ireland Protocol as a way to kind of maintain the peace. The EU and the UK agreed to this. Um, Boris Johnson agreed to this. Loyalists feel uh, like they were, you know, they were thrown under the bus by Boris Johnson. They also feel like they're... Um, their Democratic Unionist Party uh, failed at at bringing back a hard border and instead, you know, ending up with this situation called the Northern Ireland Protocol, where which is another step toward a united Ireland. They would see it. So what's happening today? Have have the Orange Order and Ulster loyalists held their usual large Orange Men's Day parade today? Yeah. So what happens? um, I've been over there this time of year often. Um, I was over there when the troubles were still in, in full swing. And uh, what would happen in the days leading up to July 12th is that Protestant unionist loyalist communities would set huge bonfires uh, with with crates of wood and hang, um, you know, Irish flags on the bomb bonfires, all symbols of Irishness. Um, any uh, Irish Republican army figures or Sinn Féin figures, um, any Catholic items, you know, the Blessed Mother or Virgin Mary or, you know, um, things like that would be thrown into the bonfire, too. 
And so it's a it's it's kind of, you know, it's it's reminiscent of images you see in this country of of clan rallies with this huge fire. Mm-hmm. And it's kind of a family event <laughs> um, of, of that's that's centered around hate. And it leads up to and, July. And a lot. They seem to be a lot of of. Uh, uh, similarities between what happened yeah. in Ireland and what happened with Jim Crow in this country. And we'll, well get yeah, into some of those with, in detail. Right. The, the creation of, of Northern Ireland really uh, came, what came with that is the creation of what's called the Orange State. The Orange State um, really enshrined a, a Protestant ascendancy. And by Protestant, of course, we mean British identified people, right? So people who would identify with the colonial side of things, the colonizer side of things. Um, And Catholic, nationalist, Republicans, Irish identified people were were second class citizens and were not allowed, you know, um, equal access to jobs, housing, the right to vote. Um, This led to eventually the civil rights movement of the late 60s, which was inspired by the American civil rights movement. Um, A lot of alliances between uh, black American activists and Irish activists over in the north um, led to the civil rights movement. And um, and that brought on it was that was the beginning when 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 civil rights marchers were um, shot down in cold blood by the British Army. That led to then the war between the Irish Republican Army and the British state and the British state worked hand in hand with loyalist paramilitaries to oppose the Irish Republican army. So it led to the war of late uh, 20th century that we all know as the troubles. And this, there are a lot of parallels in a lot of the, um, well, in, in the kind of, um, you know, the, this, the, the class citizenship, uh, the first class citizenship versus second class citizenship over there, same as here, uh, but it was actually enshrined in law as well. And people were kept out of all um, access to to education, jobs, housing, and so forth, based on their identity, based on their Irish identity, which was usually signified by their being Catholic. So, you know, we often refer to a Catholic uh, Protestant conflict, but Catholic just means Irish and Protestant just means British identified, even though they're living in Ireland. Um, so the, a lot of the parallels exist. The parallels exist also on this day, July 12th where the Orange Order would historically march um, through Catholic neighborhoods throughout the North, celebrating their ascendancy, celebrating their dominance over the Irish people by celebrating the victory of King William of Orange at the Battle of the Boyne in 1690, um, which kind of fastened the uh, the colonial state in the, in, in of Northern Ireland. Um, actually, and you, and you mentioned and you mentioned Ireland, that the Unionist Institute. You mentioned that the unions instituted a comprehensive system of discrimination in, in housing, education, employment, and voting, mm-hmm. uh, and sectarianism was state policy? Yes. I mean, it, well, the way, you know, it's the same as here where, you know, it won't say, you know, um, you know, we're not going to let black people vote or, you know, it's just, it, it wasn't stated in the, in the same way. It's just there were there were uh, barriers put up Um in particular, the barrier to voting um, was based on um, the fact that vote, voting was only um, for people who own property. And of course, um, the Catholic Irish population would be a poorer population and not own property. So you had to own property to vote. And if you owned the more property you owned, the more votes you had in Northern uh-huh. Ireland. Um, so. It was enshrined in that way. So it wasn't like, you know, no Catholics can vote, but it, it, they, they made sure. And they also gerrymandered um, the entire 
six counties of Northern Ireland and gerrymandered them in a way so that there would be, um, you know, in places with a minority of British identified uh, Ulster Unionist uh, Protestants, even when they were a minority, they would have huge amounts on, of, of um, assembly members, city councillors, and so forth. So the gerrymandering, the um, the vote based on property, um, and also, you know, when you went for a job, it was just understood that you know the, the question the question you know the job applications asked you your religion, and so um, if you were Catholic, you just would not be hired. The shipyard, the famous shipyard of Belfast, that where the Titanic was built, was one of the most discriminatory places um, in Europe up until, you know, late 20th century. Um, Catholics were not hired um, in that shipyard at all. And, you know, that that is that was the kind of, you know, it was the place where Protestants had, you know, working class Protestants had jobs. So working, so Protestants would be, would overwhelmingly make up the ascendancy. They would make up the middle class, the upper middle class, the wealthy populations of Northern Ireland. Uh, but there would still be um, a working class Protestant population that kind of maintained a buffer between the more elite Protestants and the Catholic quote unquote trash. Um, so the working class Protestants would be working in places like those shipyards and, and, and factories and, and so forth. But another thing that's changed in recent years is that those kinds of jobs are gone. So that population, the working class Protestant population, um, doesn't really have the wherewithal that Catholics had gained over the years because Catholics had to kind of figure it out and figure, you know, figure out a day to build community. They created incredible transportation systems in their community, whatever uh, transportation was denied them, for example. Protestants never had that kind of DIY spirit because they didn't have to. They didn't have to. Um, they did have access to those jobs. Those jobs are gone. So the working class and poor Protestant population is kind of in a worse place than it ever was uh, right now. And on top of that, um, well, what happens then with that population is that they get manipulated to focus on issues of identity um, and and are told by the elites, by the Protestant elites, that, you know, your identity is being eroded. Um, your the ascendancy is being taken away. Everything you had is being taken away by these Catholics, nationalist Republicans. Uh, papists and so forth. Um, so, so this is kind of this also has parallels over here, where the um, even you know even though Trump really is 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 a, was a president of some very wealthy voters, Trump is more of a white problem. Um, still, the the population that should have been voting against Trump, uh, working class whites, uh, you know, tended to 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 go that direction as well and to buy into all of it. Um, same thing over there, the population that should not be voting for Protestant elites is easily bought into the unionist agenda by um, class manipulations that focus on identity and the erosion of your identity. I mean, you have nothing and you're told you're going to lose the one remaining thing you had, which was that you were at least you were Protestant, at least you were British. You're not one of them. Um, so, so that population is really in disarray right now as it dwindles, um, as it doesn't really have anything to show for its ascendancy, at least the, the working class population. And um, as Brexit happens and a United Ireland looms. 
So, so it's really a state of, of, of uh, turmoil, that community in particular, but, but things are looking very hopeful for Ireland um, in general, because Ireland is an incredibly modern, progressive place. Um, the economy is relatively good. And um, culturally, it's, it's, it's completely changed. I mean, we all know the Ireland of old, which was dominated by the Catholic Church. Um, that is gone. Ireland is probably one of the most progressive voting places in the Western world. In terms is an abortion of, legal? Yeah. And well, in, in, in terms of the, yeah, the right for cho- the vote for choice was like, it was some, some like 72% voted um, in favor, um, something like that. And, and same sex marriage. Um, also, it was the first country in the world to um, to legalize same sex marriage by a vote rather than having to go to the courts. Um, it's just a really progressive place and not the place that people think of when they think of Ireland, because they think of the place that was at one time dominated by um, by Rome, by the Catholic Church. So in the old days, um, see, the, 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 the Protestant unionist loyalists elite um, would often use the threat also of Rome rule, like Rome is going to rule your lives if there's, if there's United Ireland. Well, that threat is gone because, um, you know, people are not, it's, it's not even really a church going place at this point. But that was a that was that threat was kind of I don't know who they were threatening with that with because they they themselves were more conservative than Rome. So, um, the, you know, the, the DUP, the Democratic Unionist Party would, wouldn't be, um, you know, would be to the right of, of, of Trump, you know? So, and here they are threatening that your life's going to be taken over by the Pope. Um, so things have changed so much and so fast, and there are so many parallels with things that are going on here. Um, there are, uh, you know, the, the, the young people um, on, on the Protestant side of things have also been, um, been, you know, moving away from their, their unionist and loyalist parents and grandparents. They're not really identifying as church going, so they wouldn't be necessarily Protestant, but they also are young and often progressive and look to south of the border to the Republic of Ireland and see this incredibly progressive place that has emerged and want to be part of it. So young Protestants are also not necessarily unionist or loyalist. Um, this would be the, no, so this would be young Protestants who would be more college educated, of course. And then of course the most stuck working class, um, and poorer Protestants would would um, be turning more to the right. So, but the numbers. Guess, the, go ahead. I just have to do a station ID. Sure. Uh, my guest on today's Leonard Lopate at Large is Michael Patrick McDonald. This is WBAI New York ninety nine point five FM, streaming live at WBAI.org. Go back to what you were saying, Michael. So, so there's just a big shift in opinion. I mean. The, um, the, the the numbers are about 50-50. There are, you know, 50% of the population would be Irish-identified Catholic nationalist Republican community, and about 50% would be Protestant, Unionist, Loyalist, British-identified people. In the old days, it was um, two to one. It was, you know, two, two-thirds of the population was Protestant, and so they maintained their ascendancy over a Catholic, Irish-identified um, minority. And... 
And the numbers have changed in terms of, okay, so an important part of it, all of this is with the Good Friday Agreement, um, which brought an end to the, the, the troubles, the war between the IRA and the British state. Um, which had lasted 30 years. 30 years. And it was on one the side. Troubles it was the troubles lasted a long time. Yeah, and one on one side, and you know, in in in, in Europe, you know, we so recently, and you know, a part of Europe was um, at war. Um, but on one side, you had the British Army uh, working hand in glove with loyalist paramilitaries um, to defeat the IRA. On the other hand, you have the Irish Republican Army and some smaller, some other um, Republican uh, groups as well. And that ended with the Good Friday Agreement. You know, Sinn Féin, uh, often referred to as the political wing of the IRA, was part of the negotiations. There were, you know, it was multi-party talks. The only people that did not sign the Good Friday Agreement were the Democratic Unionist Party. Um, You know, the Brits did, uh, the Republic of Ireland, um, um, Sinn Féin representing the the Irish Republican and Northern Agenda, and... um, and you had also um, some more moderate unionist party, the more moderate unionist party, the UUP, you had the Alliance Party and so forth. So everyone signed except for the DUP. So DUP now says, well, we never agreed to this anyway, this Good Friday Agreement stuff. Um, so there, there's often a kind of rattling of sabers and threats of a return to violence. Um, that, but, but the important thing about the Good Friday Agreement is that um, it was the first time that the British agreed that if a majority of people in the six counties of the place called Northern Ireland, if a majority of people in that state let vote to be part of the United Ireland and to leave the United Kingdom, then it shall be granted. Um, that was the first time that the Brits agreed to that. Um, so, and of course that was outrageous to the DUP, um, but it, it went into the, uh, the Good Friday Agreement. So that means that cut to today, where not only is the population 50-50 Irish-British identified, um, but a lot of the formerly British-identified Protestant Unionist loyalist population also don't like Brexit. And some of the younger Protestant Unionist loyalist uh, population, the younger crowd who might be educated, also look more to Europe, less to the United Kingdom. Um, they look more to the Republic of Ireland, south of the border, and they kind of want to be part of that. So, so the, if there were a vote, we believe that um, the, that a majority of people in the north would vote to be part of the United Ireland, would vote to be part of Europe too, by doing so. So. So what's happening today? Have the Orange Order and Ulster Loyalists held their usual large Orange Men's Day parade? Yeah, the marching all over the place. So the leading up to the 12th, the bonfires start to happen. Things get really hectic. Um, the, the you know more elite Protestant uh, Orange Order population, they get the, the working class Protestant populations more riled up, burning bonfires, throwing more and more incendiary things. Um, and, you know, like culturally, you know, just culturally incendiary smacks in the face, really, all, all over these bonfires. And it's always in the news every day what's being thrown into the bonfires next and so forth. But what also happens um, in Northern they Ireland. They burn politicians in effigy as yeah, well. Yeah, uh, people like in Jerry the, Adams. In the bonfire. People like Jerry Adams, of course, people who would be re- identified as Republicans, um, but also burning more moderate 
people who just, or even some of their own who they feel like are traitors. Um, so, and they're really, you know, that's a big, big, there's a big emphasis on traitors in that community mm-hmm. and on the need for loyalty and so forth. So, but the other thing that happens in the lead up to the 12th is that Catholics flee. Um, so from, you know, from early July, um, everything's booked getting out of town, you know, trains, buses, um, you know, hotels over the border, um, and so forth, because the Irish identified population, the Catholics would be fleeing the North to get out before July 12th, because it's when things get, you know, on on the 12th, things will come to a head often. Um, they march, uh, the orange order, the orange order are, that, you know, you got to, the, the images of them are more, these are people in suits with like um, orange sashes around their necks and a bowler hat and, you know, gloves and, a, and a, a cane and so forth. So they're dressed up as, you know, proper gentlemen. And, but they get the the more working class Protestant communities riled up and, and burning effigies and so forth. But they march but, through all the streets um, dressed in their finery and with banners that celebrate everything British, everything English, the Queen of England and so forth. Um, and especially commemorating uh, the history that they want to commemorate, which is the colonization of Ireland and their ascendancy, their historic ascendancy in it. So they march up and down streets all over the place. And it's not just the 12th. It'll be, uh, you know, the, often it's become almost like the whole summer it happens because in the lead up, they're doing all these rehearsals and and drills up and down streets everywhere you turn and and banging large you know these huge drums um and uh and when the 12th is over then they start looking toward um the next celebrations in august which is uh the 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 apprentice boys which are the junior orange order uh, they they start marching all over the place to celebrate the siege of Derry, and um, and the retreat of of um, of King James of England. So that whole battle is based on, you know, the uh, King James was uh, the deposed king. King, J- king James II was the deposed king um, of Britain, and he and he uh, basically fled to Ireland. He was Catholic. And he fled to Ireland to kind of build up a Catholic army. He figured, and he offered them, you know, independence from Britain if they would, uh, if if they were to win. Of course, they lost in, in 1690 at the Battle of the Boyne. Um, so it's bat- bait, and 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 the the victor was King William of Orange. So as a result of that, the color orange because of King William's. You know, because of where he's from, he's from Orange, and uh, you know, he's, he's a Dutchman. Um, because of where he's from, that becomes the color. Orange becomes the color. It's almost like gang colors. Orange becomes the color of the ascendancy and and of Protestant dominance in Ireland, and then later in the Northern Ireland statelet. So they celebrate but Michael, that. Haven't haven't attempts been made recently to downplay the political aspects of the marches and present the 12th and and uh, the the days that follow as kind of cultural family friendly tourist friendly events yeah they they portray it as as culture history heritage also we see parallels there um, when people will refer to you know certain statues uh, confederacy statues in this country and and um, the, the you know the, um, the the flags and so forth. The, people mm-hmm. refer to that 
as also as because uh, they can't, you know, they they can't then they're not really doing the kind of outright kill all Catholic stuff. You know, kill K.A.T. is graffiti you'll see on walls over there. And it's just kill all tags. really kill all tags. Well, tags, tags would be like um, the the N word over there. But for Irish Catholics. And uh, you were, see, there, um, were there orange men's uh, day celebrations in the part of Boston? You grew up South Boston, which was uh, had a heavily heavy Irish population. Oh, no, no. So, you know, so there's a reason for that. Um, um, and that would you would never see anything like that there. We, you know, places like South Boston and Irish America in general, at least in 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 the cities of Boston, New York, Chicago and so forth, San Francisco would be more Catholic because that's who had to, had to emigrate. Um, you know, most, most, most people identify as Irish Americans would be descendants of the colonized population, the population that was starved, um, starved out of Ireland during the great hunger um, of the 19th century and um, who basically were the peasants of the place. And they, they're the ones who populated the cities of America. Therefore their allegiances would be much more, Irish and um, Irish Republican. And it's always confusing here, of course, with the term Republican. It's not that kind of Republican, not the mm -hmm. kind of Republican we know. It's the kind of Republican that believes in an end to birthright, um, you know, hereditary privilege and power, um, a.k.a. monarchies and so forth. So that kind of Republican. And so Irish Americans would be much more identified with that struggle. And so growing up in Southie, you grew up with um, graffiti on the walls that was much more supportive of the IRA. Brits out, you'd see Brits out everywhere and um, and um, Irish tricolor flags everywhere. So no orange, uh, and we didn't, you know, we didn't know a whole lot about the Orange Order though at the same time. We did know about the Troubles and of course um, the killings of Bloody Sunday and, and a lot of the massacres that um, happened at the hands of British soldiers there. So that got a lot of support for the IRA, for the Irish Republican Army and communities like mine throughout America. This is WBAI New York 99.5 FM streaming live at WBAI.org. We're back with Michael Patrick McDonald, who is a regular contributor to this program. And this is WBAI New York 99.5 FM, streaming live at WBAI.org. Hasn't Northern Ireland's Prime Minister James Craig called it the area the most loyal part of Great Britain? While British Prime Minister Boris Johnson talks of the territorial integrity of the United Kingdom, but hasn't made it clear that his government is willing to ditch Northern Ireland if it continues to complicate Brexit. Right. So so conservatives, Tories in the United Kingdom at Westminster have always had an interesting relationship with um, the unionists of Northern Ireland. And mainly what I've seen over the years and historically is that they see the, the unionist um, MPs that go to parliament 
kind of tip the balance. You know, of course, they're all going to be conservative. They're going to be conservative, if not, you know, extremely right wing. Um, and so they tend to tip the votes in Westminster in favor of the Tories. So they're often kind of um, used for those purposes. But then when it's convenient, they'll be thrown under the bus. And that is exactly what's happened off and on. Um, you know, Boris now is is has been kind of um, wobbly on the Northern Irish protocol and, you know, wants the whenever they start to do anything that that that's in favor of loyalists in the north of Ireland, it's usually because they need their votes in Westminster to maintain their power in the UK. Um, it, it, when someone refers to it as the most loyal part of the United Kingdom, certainly the the Protestant Unionist loyalist population in the north would be more loyal to the union and to the crown than anyone you'll meet in England. Um, they're more obsessed with it. I mean, if you go through Northern Ireland in July, uh, even in J June, July and August, all summer long, you'll see in those communities, you'll see um, the the Union Jack, the British Union Jack everywhere. You will not even see the sky because there'll be so many Union Jacks hanging from posts and houses and so forth. You don't see that kind of um, jingoism as much in, in Britain. In recent years, you, you got more of it with the rise of the Brexit party and so forth. But it's really, when, I, when, when English friends would come visit me when I was in Belfast, um, they just couldn't get over it because they had never seen that kind of obsession with the union in their own England, you know. Um, so so but they they're they've you know, throughout history, they've been kind of used to tip the balance. And of course, Republicans, you know, um, Sinn Féin, often referred to as the political wing of the IRA, um, doesn't take its seats at, at Westminster. And so you have some empty seats um, there and then they're the boycotting. Uh, yeah. So they're, they're, it's an abstentionist policy. They don't recognize Westminster as their government. They'll they'll run for seats and take up the seats um, and 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 also and just not show up and also will get paid as members of parliament. Um, but in protest, do not show up. Um, the unionists. Uh, do show up, of course, and they swing the balance often in favor of conservative policy in the United Kingdom. Another interesting thing, of course, happening um, is the rise of Scottish, the Scottish Nationalist Party, um, increasingly since Brexit. So the Scottish Nationalist Party had a vote um, about leaving the United Kingdom. <clears throat> it lost, <clears throat> not by a whole, whole lot. Um, I think in what we've seen since Brexit, though, is that that party is gaining more strength um, as people uh, in Scotland see the benefits of being part of a European Union. Well, haven't mass demonstrators thrown stones and gasoline bombs at the police to protest what they're calling the Brexit betrayal? Yeah. So that and so the, the, the Northern Irish protocol putting the border, the customs border in the Irish Sea led to riots by loyalists. And a lot a lot of these riots are so these would be working class um, Protestant people from housing estates and so forth who, again, have lost their, you know, their sense of ascendancy Um and they would be manipulated by a lot of older, like either loyalist paramilitary thugs, <clears throat> along with 
you know, more proper, polite politicians who throw them dog whistles and and get them all riled up as well. Um, so they've been they were in in the past few months they were um, worked up against the Northern Irish Protocol and <clears throat> were involved in throwing petrol bombs and so forth. And what's interesting now is that you see clashes between the police force and Protestants, and that was you know that's really unusual historically. Um, the clashes would be between the Protestant police, for the, you know, during during uh, the, the the northern, you know, the orange state that was created with with uh, Protestant ascendancy in the north of Ireland. During that, the whole 20th century, the, the police force, of course, was a Protestant police force um, there. And, and a lot of police officers were members of Protestant um, loyalist paramilitary groups by night. Um, and. It's really interesting now to see that, you know, that the the dynamics have completely changed. The police force is still um, majority Protestant, um, but bound to rule of law on a lot of this stuff, though you'll hear of um, police often acting um, in in cahoots with some loyalists and rioters and so forth. But the images you see are. Um, a police force that historically kept Catholics down that is now fighting with a mostly working class Protestant population. And again, that working class Protestant population, um, they're part of the historically dominant wealthy Protestant population. So they just kind of have a certain role to play within all of that in the same way that maybe poor and working class whites in this country um, do work in work in collusion with whiteness um, in, in a bigger way. They're working in you collusion. Protestant you mentioned that the things. Uh, I'm sorry. You mentioned that things improved in 1998 with the Good Friday Agreement, which was ratified by 70 percent of uh, by a 70 percent vote in a referendum. It brought an end to the violence, inaugurated power-sharing executive in which parties representing the two main communities operate in mandatory coalition. But how successful has it been? Well, it's 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 been uh, called off. The you know Stormont uh, has been um, suspended a few times. It's it's really not been very successful. I think one of the biggest wait wait problems- the storm you said the Stormont. Stormont would be the, you know, the, the name of the building where uh, the legislative assembly of, quote unquote, Northern Ireland meets. Um, so so that that's the name of the building. They refer, so it would be like Westminster, the, the, the devolved um, legislative assembly that that um, is part of the United Kingdom. But in it, you know, makes decisions on local Northern Irish, Northern Irish issues um, that that assembly has been suspended a few times. I think one of the biggest problems has been that the Good Friday Agreement enshrined into itself this whole um, this binary of Catholic Protestant um, and and or Catholic Protestant nationalist unionist um, and insists on uh, insists on an executive at the at, at the top of the assembly that is you know one one person from each end of that binary so one catholic nationalist republican at the executive level and one uh protestant unionist loyalist at the executive level well things have gotten really complicated and interesting of course in political in terms of political parties affiliations people's politics things aren't really on that binary so much anymore 
And so, um, so it's, it's, it's weird that the, that the peace agreement actually enshrined a binary that was, you know, is, is a colonial construct in itself. Um, and, and I think that's part of the failure. Um, and the, like, like I was saying about younger people, and this, is, this would go for younger Catholic nationalist, Republican community people, as well as younger people from the Protestant community, have all kinds of other concerns that don't really have a whole lot to do with the colonial construct. Um, and who want decisions made about a whole lot of stuff, um, in addition to the constitutional status of Northern Ireland. It's it's mostly fallen apart, though, because I would say because of the Democratic Unionist Party being really intransigent on any issues that might threaten uh, Protestant British cultural ascendancy. So, for example, one of the biggest, um, most contentious issues to them would be the Irish Language Act. Um, a lot of people who are not Irish background and even a lot of Irish Americans don't really know that Ireland had a language of its own. And uh, one of the Ireland had uh, Gaelic. Yeah. Well, what's often referred to as, uh, as Gaelic, they call it Irish over there to because diff- it's Irish Gaelic, the Scots Gaelic um, and there's, there's Manx. Um, so they call it Irish over there, but Irish Gaelic, let's say. And <clears throat> they, that language was the indigenous language. It was targeted by British colonization. When the Brits came in, they targeted the culture as they did elsewhere around the world, but they really specifically targeted the culture in this first colonial experiment in Ireland. Uh, they, you know, the, one of the first decrees give, given by um, Queen Elizabeth I was um, to uh, hang all the hang all the poets and break all their harps. Um, so the, the culture was targeted. The language was targeted. Uh, people were. Uh, punished for speaking um, Irish and were um, given benefit if they were to speak English and so forth. And that, that, you know, so the, the language in the North. So when Ireland got its independence, the 26 counties of the Irish Republic in the South got its independence, they brought back Irish as the state language. So it's in all documents and it's in all street signs and so forth. People still speak English as a result of the colonized mind in Ireland. Uh, and, you know, the, the entire colonial project has, has resulted in people just kind of going with it, right, with with some of that stuff. But they bring it bring back Irish language into their documents, into their legal documents, into the street signs and so forth. And there's a great respect for it in the north. All references, all, you know, all all street signs in Irish would be, you know, would be taken down, mm-hmm. would be confiscated and so forth. So um, so the, the Unionist Party in Northern Ireland has been really threatened by the Irish Language Act, which was part of the reconciliation process um, that was brought into the reconciliation process in the St. Andrews Agreement of 2006. And all it's asking for is what other parts of the UK have. Um, for example, Wales, if you go to Wales, you'll see signs in uh, in Welsh as well as English. Uh, you'll see respect for the language there and uh, in, in Wales, same thing in Scotland. But the Democratic Unionist Party in Northern Ireland uh, fights tooth and nail any uh, signage in Irish language at all. They consider it, well, they call it a leprechaun language. They consider it um, a terrorist language. They associate it with the Irish Republican Army. And they just see it as part of this kind of chipping away at their cultural, British cultural ascendancy. So um, 
it's the Irish Language Act that most recently brought down Stormont um, because the DUP was so intransigent about simply um, respecting this part of the reconciliation agreement, the St. Andrews Agreement of 2006, this part of it that would uh, bring respect to the Irish language. In Catholic nationalist Republican communities in the North, um, especially in working class communities, a lot of people are bilingual. A lot of people speak Irish at home. Um, a lot of signage is in Irish anyway. Uh, during the Troubles, that stuff would be, you know, any signs in Irish would be taken down by the Protestant police force. Um, more recently, they'd kind of leave them up. So if you go into like West Belfast, you'll see a lot of, you'll see and hear Irish language everywhere, but they just don't want it instituted um, and and in, into, um, you know, the, the the shared spaces as they might be. So, so the whole notion, uh, you know, one of the things that came out of the Good Friday Agreement is this notion of shared spaces, that there has to be respect for shared spaces. There has to be respect for, both communities, symbols, and so forth. You know, if you have a British crown on your money, you also need to have some Irish symbol as well, a harp or something. Mm-hmm. Um, so all this stuff is meant to create a parity, parity of esteem and a sense of shared space for people so that people don't feel threatened in downtown areas. Um, the downtown areas were often really threatening to Catholic nationalist Republican uh, community because they would be walking by all the statues and symbols of ascendancy and dominance and the crushing of Irish culture. My guest on today's Leonard Lopate at Large is Michael Patrick McDonald. This is WBAI New York 99.5 FM and uh, streaming live at WBAI.org. We only have a little time left, but I wanted to talk about something you mentioned earlier that as a society, Northern Ireland has become more secular, more tolerant of diversity, less insular. I gather it's led some uh, many young people to choose not to vote at all. But according to a recent poll, support for the Democratic Unionist Party is now at just 16 percent, mm. with, with Sinn Féin um, actually uh, well ahead at 25 percent. Is it likely that during the in the upcoming election, Sinn Féin may take the post of first minister for the first time? Yeah, it very well could happen. Um, see, the, the, the DUP has just dug its grave by not adapting, not, um, you know, not moving with the times and the, the, the desire for people to um, not only live in peace, but live with some sense of justice and equality. Um, there. And so they, they really have dug their own grave and this will be their undoing for sure. So they really now Britain kind of, and go ahead. What's I'm sorry. Well, I, I just think that bring up- as, as a result, they, they, they think that the way forward is to keep rattling the sabers and getting <clears throat> the working class community worked up. And again, these, you know, most of these politicians are not really from those communities, you know, but mm-hmm. they, they know that those communities, the working class Protestant communities, um, would be, a, 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 you know, a threat and would, you know, there's a threat of violence. Um, and because those are communities where the, the loyalist paramilitaries who once were fighting in cahoots with the Brit- alongside the British army against the Irish Republican army, those, those loyalist uh, paramilitaries still run those communities and they run the drugs in those communities. So they've gone from, you know, fighting this um, war in, in, in alliance with the British Army to basically running a lot of the drugs in, in the north of Ireland. 
and they rule those communities. They would be, you know, so there's, it's for me coming from a place like South Boston, coming from the housing projects in South Boston, South Boston had the highest concentration of white poverty in America. We were also controlled by organized crime by Whitey Bulger, who's very famous in this country. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, We've talked about we, him on previous shows. Yes. <laughs> and, um, and, and so I, what's interesting for me is that I come from a community that is Irish Catholic identified. Um, we grew up with, IRA murals on the wall. We grew up with, um, you know, anti-British murals on the wall. And what's interesting to me when I'm over there is I, even though our, the community I come from, uh, their allegiances were with um, the Irish Republican struggle. In a lot of ways, they had more in common with the loyalist working class communities that I see over there. So over there, Catholic, nationalist, Republican, Irish identified working class communities are very conscious, a very politically conscious, a very uh, rights conscious, a very globally conscious. Their allegiances historically were with the ANC in South Africa. They were with the black struggle here in America. So these are working class and poor Catholic communities in the north of Ireland. The, 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 the people who were kept as second class citizens. They have a very high consciousness, political consciousness, social consciousness, and so forth. The um, the working class Protestant communities wouldn't have that because they weren't they weren't you know struggling against oppression, and they weren't they you know they even even if they were poor and working class, they were not being targeted for their identity. Um, as a result, they tend to be more conservative. Um, right wing even and um, but also really kind of um, really screwed in, in a lot of ways um, and and duped, duped by the powers that be in their own community, you know, the more elites, the elites of their identity and they're duped and they're there. It's to their own demise, really, um, that they go in that direction. So it's interesting that coming from a place like South Boston, I see more similarities in these communities that are working class uh, Protestant run by organized crime loyalists who run a drug trade um, <laughs> and who are duped by more elite politicians as well as their own gangster, their own gangster um, thugs in their community. Michael, Michael, we have just a minute left, but I want to bring up one other thing. It's again <laughs> Brexit related. Britain and the European Union have called a truce in what's being called the sausage wars. What role does a dispute over breakfast, uh, a breakfast item play in questions about the future of Northern Ireland? Well, I, 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 <laughs> quick, unfortunately. every week it'll be something else, though, you know what I mean? And it, it's really just um, kind of I, I think a lot of these are just distractions and um, and and, you know, unionists want to get worked up over something new every week. Um, and and so, you know, they don't like Brexit. I mean, they, they love Brexit, but they don't like this version of Brexit that has put the uh, border in the mm-hmm. Irish Sea. And so, um, you know, I, I kind of don't haven't been paying attention to all of the various distractions that they come up with, because every week it's something else. Um, and, you know, one week it'll be breakfast sausages. Some you know, next week it could be um, it could be their own flags or something. You know what I mean? So, um, well, we'll, but, we'll catch up the next time you appear on our show. Yes. It's, it's <laughs> always a pleasure having you. 
on our show, Michael Patrick um, McDonald, who is the author of a number of uh, popular books, of the best-selling, award-winning uh, memoir, All Souls, A Family Story from Southie, uh, and uh, Easter Rising, A Memoir of Roots and Rebellion. It's uh, been a pleasure. We'll speak soon, I hope. Thank you. See you soon. And uh, that pretty much brings us to the end of today's show. You can access our archive of over 500 shows at WBAI.org. We're also available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and everywhere else that podcasts are available. And there are links to our past interviews on our website, LeonardLopateAtLarge.com. If you'd like to write to me, my email address is LeonardLopate at WBAI.org. Before I go, I need to ask you to consider supporting WBAI by going online to give to WBAI.org or by calling 212-209-2950. That's 212-209-2950. Please do it right now to help keep this show coming to you weekdays from 1 to 2 p.m. We need we need your support to keep this historic station the only one on the New York radio dial that's 100% listed sponsored on the air especially in this time of crisis when uh, some people have been forced to uh, withdraw their support because uh, money got tight one great way to show your support for what we do on London Lopez at Large is to become a sustaining member what we call a BAI buddy BAI buddies provide WBAI with a steady stable support of support something we need now more than ever but however you choose to donate what matters is that you join your fellow listeners who keep this alternative to corporate radio alive and well during through their generosity again the number to call to make your tax-deductible contribution is 212-209-2950, or you can go online to give to WBAI.org. And please be sure to make that contribution in the name of Leonard Lopit at large. And thank you very much. I hope that you can join us for tomorrow's show when attorney and former a competitive gymnast Sarah Klein, the first known victim of former Olympic women's gymnastics Dr. Larry Nasser, just will discuss what the Adult Survivors Act, currently stalled in the New York State Assembly, would mean to survivors of sexual assault if it were passed into law. You won't want to miss it. <laughs>